0: What up, world? It's your past first point guard and Blazer beat writer Mike Richmond. You are listening to another episode of Lockdown Blazers. Part of the Lockdown Podcast Network available wherever you get podcasts. The Blazers on this Monday evening lost to the San Antonio Spurs 113-110 in San Antonio to fall to 2 and 2 on the season and 2 and 1 in their three game four, excuse me, four game road trip to begin the season. I want to start with a quick run through of that game. A look ahead to the final game of the trip, which is Wednesday in Oklahoma City. And then I also want to answer some of your questions. It's Tuesday Mailbag Day. We've got a mini mailbag episode for you of our weekly mailbag. We do these every week. I'll explain more when we get there in the second and third segments. But answering your questions that I solicit on Twitter and you send to me and I answer them here in the podcast. We'll get there. Second and third segment, I promise. Everybody who submitted a question's getting theirs answered tonight. But let's start with the Blazers' game on the road. This one looked like a blowout. Maybe not to the trained Blazer watcher. Maybe not to the team that watched the Blazers last night crawl back from a big deficit against the Dallas Mavericks. The Blazers led by 19. 23-4 early in this one. And then they fell apart. But before we get to the recap stuff, and I don't want to spend too much time on the recap things, I don't want to recap the games on this podcast. If you're listening to this, you probably watched the games. And if you didn't, there's still time, folks. But the questions that were going to be answered before this game were, who was going to start for Zach Collins? I predicted on this podcast yesterday that it would be Anthony Tolliver. And what's that? That is me tooting my own horn. Anthony Tolliver started. He was the obvious choice, uh, mostly because he is the only power forward on the roster. But also because starting with Mario Hazonia, the Blazers start a little bit small, sacrifice some of their offense, and sacrifice how important Hazonia is coming off the bench and playing a bunch of minutes with the second unit. And I guess the other guess that I saw people throw out there was Scalabusier. Let me tell you guys something. During a story for a story I was writing earlier in the year, I was talking to Scal about kind of fitting in with this team, learning to all the things he was in training camp, uh, rehabbing from his shoulder injury, yada yada yada. And he told me that he doesn't really know the positions from the power forward spot, and that when he shared the court with Zach Collins, Collins basically has to play four because Zach knows the offensive plays from the four, from four. And Scal really only knows the plays from five. So he's not going to play power forward at all. He's going to spend, I'm going to guess, zero minutes next to Hassan Whiteside because he literally does not know the playbook. Maybe he eventually he drills in a couple things, they get a couple sets where Scal understands what to do at four, but it's a bad fit for him there just skill-wise, and he literally doesn't know the plays. He was never a choice to start a power forward, Tolliver was. That's just a little inside the bit. I got, maybe got carried away too to my own horn. I apologize. But the other thing we were waiting on pregame was an update on Zach Collins, and predictably the Blazers gave a no-update update. He got an MRI. They did not release the results of the MRI. He told reporters after the game they hadn't even told him what the results of the MRI were. What Terry Stotts did tell reporters who were in San Antonio this evening is that they were going to wait to get back to Portland and let the team doctors review the images taken on the MRI and decide the course of action for Zach Collins' dislocated left shoulder. That means he's not going to play against OKC, and it sounds like he's very unlikely to play against Philly on Saturday. So we're looking at a minimum of three games missed, three and a half if you include when he got hurt. And likely more, if if this was an if this was a thing that they thought they could take care of quickly, they probably would have said something. Um, I don't want to speculate, but a lack of information here seems like it just stretches out the timeline. I'm, I'm not speculating on severity, but just timeline wise. the what the blazers are willing to do with Collins is definitely um, going to be stretched out a little bit if they are going to be patient and wait until they return home. Late Wednesday night, he'll probably meet with doctors on Thursday at the team's practice facility. We'll if the team practices, we might, might know more then. If not, it'll come Friday. I wouldn't be surprised if we don't know anything Friday because the Blazers are like that with injuries. If he's not going to come back, we might just hear that he is ruled out for Saturday and they will not speculate any further. So really quickly, here's, my, here's what happened in the game. I'm going to give you the fastest recap in the West. Blazers up 23-9, 23-4 early, 19-point lead in the first quarter. Looks like it's over. They scored 33 points in the first. They're up 14 after one. They're in control. They scored 38 points in the next two quarters. I think the third quarter was their worst quarter of the season for my money. I think that's as bad as we've seen them play. That's probably the worst 12 minutes of basketball they've played through their first four games. Spurs took control. They went from down 19 to up 15, and through the first three quarters, Damian Lillard was three for 16 from the floor, 10 points. The Blazers are just, quite frankly, not built for him to have a bad game. He carried them late against Sacramento, put them put the game away by playing like one of the best players in the NBA. He was fantastic in the second half against Dallas, helping them pull away and and pull that one out down the stretch. But also the other part of that Dallas game was the Blazers had a third score. Rodney Hood had 20. No one else really came to play offensively in this game. Amber Simons, 10 points off the bench. Scal, 10 points off the bench. Kent Bazemore, super bad. Just a super bad offensive night. He he had some moments on defense, but he ended up fouling out in 24 minutes. His last two fouls were just kind of cheapy reach-in fouls. He was one of nine from the floor. He struggled. CJ had a good offensive night. 10 of 22, 27 points. And like I said, through three quarters, Damian Lillard, 10 points of 316 shooting. But in the fourth quarter, he came alive. It almost brought the Blazers all the way back. Six of 12 in the fourth quarter, 18
1: points. Had the buckets to keep him close. Hit a three to cut into the lead. Got to the rack
0: to cut the lead to three, and then after DeMar DeRozan bricked two free throws. Come on, DeMar! The Blazers had a couple shots at it. Dame took what amounted to a running pull-up one-footer because he thought the Spurs were going to foul. Uh, commit an intentional foul and put him on the line, so he was trying to take a shot and draw a foul so he would get three free throws. Instead, Bryn Forbes just kind of backed off. Derek White, excuse me. But whatever, a Spurs guard backed off, and Dame took a running one-footer from beyond the arc. Uh, ball came off soft, but two Spurs fought over it. Ball goes out of bounds on the baseline. Blazers get it back. They run a great ATO. Just a fantastic final play to get a shot off. Dame in the far right corner catches what's a pretty clean look. Trey Lyles got a little bit lost. Derek White recovered to make it a pretty good contest. But Dane put up a leaning three from the corner that went halfway in, maybe more than halfway in. The ball might have been three-quarters the way below the rim. Rims out. Blazers lose by three. couple things. I think the Blazers missed... Zach Collins, uh, if nothing else, just for another big body to put in there and a, and a better screener offensive rebounder. Offense got super stagnant in those middle two quarters. Third quarter, they were bad on offense, bad on defense. So much one-on-one, just like one pass, four guys around the perimeter, one dude takes three dribbles to get loose, takes a jump shot. Uh, just a a bad offensive night in that middle quarter. Dame was almost heroic enough to erase memories of that. And yet again, the Blazers closed out a game without Hassan Whiteside on the floor. A trend. A trend through four games. I mentioned this after three games, and it happened again. Whiteside wasn't super good in this one. 8.7 rebounds. Played 24 minutes. But at the end of the game, the Blazers closed out with Dame, CJ, Rodney Hood, Anthony Simons playing in place of the fouled-out Kent Bazemore, and Tolliver at center. I mentioned in the last podcast that the crunch time lineup just has to feature Whiteside. They just, the just, the Blazers are not constructed such that they have a better option than him. He has to be, be the guy who can play in close games, but Terry Stotts clearly doesn't trust him. This was more of a let's go with what's working since the Blazers were like in a sort of frantic comeback scramble mode. They wanted more offense, more shooting, more space on the court than what Whiteside offers. They wanted to play a little faster too. But the Blazers have had four games now where the game where the the game has been decided down the stretch, and Hassan Whiteside has watched all of those games from the bench. If nothing else is worth noting. Next up for the Blazers, OKC, to close out this trip. Oklahoma City's one and three. They're kind of better than you think, but not good. No depth. They're small. Their best their best lineup features Dennis Schroeder, Chris Paul. Say Jills Alexander, Danilo Gallinari, and Steven Adams. That group is tiny. They probably won't be able to take advantage of how size challenged the Blazers are, but I thought Zach Collins' absence against the Spurs underscored the Blazers' big man, their sort of dearth of big man, their, their lack of big man options, and how much they'll miss Collins. All right, in the second segment, we're answering your questions before we get there, I want to tell you guys about Indochino. Indochino is the world's largest made to measure menswear brand. Start your style upgrade now with $30 off your total purchase of $399 or more when you shop at
1: Indochino.com and enter the code LockedOn at checkout. All right. I gave
0: you the fastest rundown in the West and your Zach Collins, non-update update. It's time to go to the mini mailbag. Uh, We're going to do these all season long. I'm going to ask for your questions on Sunday and Monday. Record these early in the week. Likely publishing on Tuesday. Unless it's a night like this where there's back-to-back games. And maybe there just weren't that many questions. Because people were busy watching the game. But I got enough to put a mini mailbag segment together. Um, I I solicit these questions on Twitter at Rich. You can either wait till you see me ask the question. Hey, I need some questions for... Uh, mailbag episode of the podcast or you can just tweet at me whenever and say hey i got a question about the blazers and i'll just save it and answer it on the podcast at mikey rich on twitter let's get right to it though your mini mailbag first one comes from matthew at reverend romulus on twitter and Matt matt asks a very relevant question. He says, if Zach misses extended time, will the team need to use the last open spot on the roster for a veteran center or can they survive using the current roster or maybe the two way guys until Pau Gasol is available and or Zach Collins is back? Can they survive? Let's answer that first. And then I'll get to sort of the logic of the rest of the question. I think the Blazers can survive. I think they were exposed a little bit against the Spurs. Scalabazier has good offensive touch. He's a good offensive rebounder. He's not an elite defensive player by any means. He's big, he's long. He doesn't totally get bodied by bigger guys, but he's not just, he's not an elite defensive player. He's not a great screen setter. I think the Blazers are missing screen setters this year. I think they miss Nurk and, and Myers leonard setting. Real powerful screens.
1: Hassan Whiteside has a lot of positives. He's a giant person. He's very efficient around the rim.
0: He's good at being big. The Blazers have, early in the season, have been really good at keeping teams away from the rim, preventing shots right at the rim. It's it's their bread and butter, and Whiteside has filled in perfectly in that role. But he has real offensive deficiencies. You can't really throw it to him in the post and expect much out of it. He's not a great playmaker. He has. Very limited range. He's um he he has
1: he has some clear weaknesses. Scal does some good things, but he has some clear weaknesses. And then the and then the rest of the options. Anthony Tolliver has, although he
0: wasn't terrible against San Antonio, he just hasn't put together a really good game yet. There's not a single game where you can say Anthony Tolliver played well. I think he was not bad against San Antonio, and that's probably the best he's played. Four games in, not bad is the highest superlative we're giving Anthony Tolliver. Mario Zonia is an interesting option at the four, but he's more intriguing than he is effective. Four games into the season, he's really fast. He uses his athleticism to do things like get into the paint, but he hasn't finished super well. He had a he had a really really nice step back three pointer from the corner tonight,
1: but he also like heinously bricked a wide open three from the top of the key. And for his intriguingness as
0: a four, he's not super physical, super high-level rebounder. He's more of a small ball four change of pace type power forward. Rodney Hood can play a little bit of four, but you're sacrificing a lot of size. Hood is a three who's more like a two than a four,
1: even though he's tall. But you can get away with him playing there a little bit. So can they survive? Yeah, probably.
0: I don't exactly know what survive means, but I, I'm i answering that question by way of the second part. They're not going to bring the two-way guys up. There's just absolutely no way the solution for the Blazers is Jalen Horde or Moses Brown. I think even if Zach were to be ruled out for a month, those two dudes are in Dallas or wherever the Texas Legends are located, the, the metroplex area of Dallas. Um... Those guys are in the G League. They're G League players. They're not NBA solutions. They're certainly not NBA solutions for a team of that level. Additionally, I don't think the Blazers are going to waste a roster spot, even non-guaranteed, on a veteran center. Although, I wouldn't rule that out. I think that's the most likely option, is that you sign a Tyler Zeller type to a 10-day contract. And maybe a second 10-day contract and try to squeeze 20 days out of someone who you know is not going to be on the roster. The problem is that that costs money. That that drives up the Blazers luxury tax bill. So we don't really know how much they'd be willing to invest. If you get a non-guaranteed guy and you keep him on until January, that also drives up the bill. And if they're not going to play a bunch or if they're just going to be an emergency type option, I don't think the Blazers turn to that. I do think the Blazers are challenged with Collins out. I think the roster is exposed a little bit of how important he was. I talked about it in my season preview, if you go back and listen to the Zach Collins uh, Season Outlook podcast. I, talk about, I talked about how important he was to this roster just because, like, Anthony Simons, they've asked him to step into a bigger role, but they have other options behind Simons to do things. They don't have that behind Collins, and we're seeing that now. Maybe the theoretical Anthony Tolliver shows up, the guy who can actually make three-pointers and and is like has, has some skills other than drawing at the occasional charge.
1: Although the charge he drew tonight was great in the first quarter. No disrespect. But I don't think the Blazers turn to those two options. I don't think they're going to
0: sign a veteran center unless it's the 10-day guy, and they're certainly not going to bring up one of the two-way players to pl- fill that position. So I'm going to say yes, they can survive, but only because that's what they're going to choose to do. Thanks for the question, Matt. Next question comes from Logan Giles. And Logan asks, with CJ, Ant, Hoodie, and Baze, Logan always goes nicknames, guys. He asks questions very regularly, and he always goes nicknames, and we at Lockdown Blazers appreciate it. So let me let me try that one again. With CJ Ant, Hoodie, and Bays, do the Blazers have the most guys in the league who can do damage on a mid-range in the mid-range on a single team?
1: I'm gonna say no on this one. And if you're talking about just largest number of guys,
0: maybe they're in the maybe they're in the conversation. But early on, I'd say the Clippers are definitely in that realm. Uh Kawhi Leonard. Operates a ton in that pull-up mid-range game. Uh Lou Williams operates a ton in that sort of snake a pick and roll, take a 19, take a little open 19-footer. Montrez Harrell, same boat. Doesn't take a lot of threes, but if he does take jumpers, he shoots him from the mid-range. But if you're looking for the team that's most dangerous in the mid-range, the most guys who
1: who can attack from the mid-range, it's those San Antonio Spurs. The team we saw tonight. They don't really take threes.
0: Lamarcus Aldridge, DeMar DeRozan, both guards have uh, both off- offensive guards who are not Brent Forbes. Derek Derek White's offense is kind of in that in-between game, even though he tacks the rim. Shante Murray, a lot of little floaters and pull-ups, a lot of little touch shots, not a lot of threes. The Spurs are probably your
1: highest-volume mid-range team and your your biggest mid-range assassins. But I will say this, C.J. might be the best mid-range
0: shooter in the league in terms of volume, difficulty, and how much he goes to that shot. Anfrey Simons has kind of carved out a role as a better pull-up mid-range shooter early on in his, his regular part of the rotation career than he is a, a long-range jump shooter. Rodney Hood loves the mid-range, loves the mid-post, although we haven't seen a ton of mid-post Rodney Hood. Maybe it'll come back. And Ken Bazemore has taken a ton of pull-up mid-range jumpers and clanged a ton of mid-range pull-ups. is going to make some shots over the next couple weeks, and people are... They already love him, but he's going to start making some shots. He's going to start having these shots actually drop, and he's he's even going to go deeper into the hearts of Rip City fans. So yeah, I think the Blazers have a bunch of dudes who can score from mid-range. I think it's a, a, a very... Astute observation, Logan. But I think there's a couple teams just in the Western Conference who are even better at
1: it than them. All right, in the third segment, we'll close out with a couple more questions. Mini mailbag. Reminder that you can
0: have your question answered on Lockdown Blazers by submitting questions to at MikeGRich on Twitter. You can find out if the Blazers would be
1: better off with the G League team. In fact, that's what I'll talk about next. Alright, still Locked On Blazers, still pass first point guard, still Mike Richmond.
0: Close out the show with two more questions on this mini mailbag edition of Lockdown Blazers. Our next question comes from Score Score Podcast at ScoreZ Score on Twitter. Real quick, uh, Chapel Hill Kid on this podcast. Carolina comes to Spokane later this year. Go Tar Heels, don't tweet at me that week. We got beef. But now let's answer your question. Do you think the Blazers are at a disadvantage not having their own G League team? And do you think the G League will expand into the Pacific Northwest anytime soon? Possibly Spokane? Well, score, zag, score. If the G League comes to Pacific Northwest, And specifically, if the G League comes to Spokane, let me address that first. If the G League comes to Spokane, it will not be the Blazers G League team. One of the reasons they are reluctant to put a G League team in is because I think Paul Allen feels like, or at least he did when he was alive, felt like he kind of got burned by having the Idaho Stampede. He lost a bunch
1: of money. And also, it just didn't work out for what they were doing. Uh, Having a team in Boise was too far away. So one of the reasons that they were resistant is because they wanted to find a place
0: that they could put a team that would work out for what they wanted to do. And what they want to be able to do was have a guy be able to practice with the team in Tualatin and then be assigned to the G League for the night and be able to drive down there like one or two hours in that range, like Seattle is too far an hour or two so they could play in the game later that afternoon and then get back that night. So, if they're looking for a team, I don't think the Blazers would move much further than Eugene. I don't think they would go north of Olympia
1: like they, they like I said, Seattle is too far away. In addition,
0: the Blazers so there was there was the financial aspect. Allen, Paul Allen felt like he kind of got ripped off um, running the owning the Idaho Stampede. It just wasn't worth it. You couldn't make a ton of money with a minor league basketball team. He pulled out. The team died. Uh, Kevin Dana wrote a book about it. That's just a plug for my buddy who wrote a book about professional basketball in Idaho. So in addition to the financial thing, there was a the logistics thing. The team's just too far away. The Blazers want a team that's functionally close. And the other reason that they have been resistant to have a G League team is because they really believe in the coaching staff they have on hand. They don't really want to send guys out to another coaching staff. They feel like they can develop guys in-house and also have those guys spend time around pros, talk to Damian Lillard, talk to C.J. McCollum. I mean, if going back further, talking to guys like Steve Blake or Chris Kamen or
1: LaMarcus Aldridge. Having... having their young guys spend time around pros is important to them.
0: Having their young guys in the gym working with their coaches and the Blazers are really specific about the type of things they work on with young players. They are really heavy on practicing game shots and roll type shots. If you watch them warm up before the game, guys warm up in sort of specific patterns and do things they're going to do during the game. Even if, uh, some guys will close their workout shooting uh, in a couple corner three-pointers. Like Scalabasier might take a, some threes. He'll, he's going to take threes from the top of the key in the type of threes that he might get during the game. Robin Lopez used to close his workout shooting one single corner three. He was close to the tunnel. He would make a three. He would run into the tunnel and leave. It wasn't. He had done all of his functional stuff. That was kind of his his game-ender. As a side note, Robin Lopez takes threes now. But the Blazers really believe in having their guys in house and working on stuff, working on real, real skills that the coaching staff says this is how we're going to use you in a game. This is what we want you to drill down and get better at. So financially, logistically, and how they prefer to develop guys, the Blazers are one of the teams that has leaned away from the G League. Now, are they at not your first part of your question is they are they at a disadvantage? I want to say yes. That's my gut, that yes, the teams with their own G League team and with their own development engine have an advantage. But then I'm not sure that's true. The two teams that don't have G League teams right now, Denver and Portland, are two of the best skill development and young player development teams in the league. While I think there's probably a big picture advantage to having a G League team, Can, they you can have a farm system that runs your offense you can have a little incubator for young guys you can take risks on on players sign them to your G League team keep them in your organization and have uh you know right to 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 either sign them or like the Golden State Warriors did uh keep a guy kind of hidden and then draft him in the second round but functionally the way the league works I'm not sure we've seen the G League generate a lot of difference making type players. And the teams that have the closest connection with the G League, I'm not sure we've seen them really draw a distinct, specific
1: advantage from it. The closest thing is the Miami Heat. But I think you can do a lot in house drafting guys. The Blazers have,
0: like virtually every team in the league, I think there's only one. Open two-way contract in the whole league is taking advantage of the two-way contract that keeps guys under your control, keeps guys maybe you thought about drafting, it gives them a you know a full year of of you getting to to scout them and watch them and then keep their restricted rights. But they've assigned Jalen Hord and Moses Brown to the te- to the Texas Legends. I don't think we see a ton of them this year. Maybe they'll come up here and there when the Blazers are on a road trip that makes it convenient for them to come. They'll certainly be here at the end of the year when the G League season ends. But I don't think is a disadvantage. Okay, final question, then we'll get out of here. Paint PDS PDX asks Mike, do you or have you traveled with the team? What's it like being a beat reporter? What are players and coaches on the team currently are what players and coaches on the team are currently best with the media? What do you think is the hang up with the Blazers getting a G League team? Hey, listen, Paint PDX already answered that last question. Also, you did that thing where you tried to sneak four questions in. Usually I complain when people do that. Ask one at a time. But we got, we're got light on questions, so I'm going to just say thanks, PDX. I appreciate you, dog. I was a beat reporter who traveled with the team for four seasons. What's it like being a beat reporter? You just spend a lot of time around the team. You're just with them a lot for... Eight straight months, you see these guys all the time. I think the big advantage of being traveling media is that NBA players really start to respect you if they see you showing up to all their weird random practices in suburban Oklahoma City and some high school gym in Milwaukee and uh, when they're practicing at UCLA for a day and when they're in Los Angeles and you walk into the gym... When the, it opens up to the media, they start to really respect you. You can form a relationship with it because they see you on the road. They know you're grinding. You get better stories when you're out on the road. The Blazers actually just straight up have better media policies on the road. You can get better interviews. So what's it like being a beat reporter? Um, now with the way my job is set up, uh, I only am around the team a couple times a week I don't have as long a time to sort of see the the behind-the-scenes stuff and paint a picture. i got to swoop in and act quickly. With a beat reporter, you're allowed to be more patient because while you are churning out stories every day, you're just seeing stuff that you can kind of build up in the back of your your notebook. What players and coaches on the team are currently best with the media? Kent Bazemore has an incredible interview. Anthony Tolliver has been fantastic the couple times I've interviewed him. Dame is maybe the best superstar interview in the NBA the most patient and forthcoming he's kind of corny sometimes because he gives you these like really Pollyanna positive answers but it's authentic like that's really who he is so when he's giving you something that might sound corny it's because he truly believes it and he and um and it's coming from a place of honesty uh I wouldn't say Terry Stotts is very good with the media. I think he has a perception of being a cool media coach. Uh, I don't think people who are around him regularly think that. All the Blazers assistant coaches, you can't interview them like casually the way the team does it, but most of those dudes are really nice. And uh, and when you do get to talk to the Nate Tibbets and Jim Morans and Dale Osbournes of the world, they're very kind, forthcoming, easy to work with, honest, all those things, all the things you want. Did that answer it? I could go much deeper on being a beat reporter, but yeah, I've, uh, I've traveled with the team and by travel with the team, it means that I've ridden on commercial planes while they take a uh, private flight. All right. Went a little long, even on mini mailbag, but I wanted to give each of you who asked a question, a thorough response. I appreciate you listening. Tell your friends about lockdown blazers. It's available wherever they already get podcast. That's on Google, Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Blazers. Close up the road trip Wednesday against OKC. Back home Saturday. Got more podcasts coming your way. I appreciate you listening. Talk to you soon.